Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to today's monthly teleconference. Our topic for today is the H-1B cap subject cases for the next fiscal year. I have on my panel two of our brilliant, amazing Murthy Law Firm lawyers, attorney Adam Rosen and attorney Yunhei Gon. Adam's been with the firm for almost a decade and he's a member of the firm and Yunhei has been with us about half a decade and has had several prior years of experience working in the Washington DC, Virginia area and is actually the supervising attorney for the H-1B department. I know some of the questions we're going to go over and I'm going to be the moderator for today's discussion as usual. May sound a little simple and like a broad overview, but the goal really is to start from the simple and then go on to the more complex issues to help you to plan. And also because some of you are at different levels of experience uh, and knowledge in terms of understanding the H-1B process. So one of the introductory questions that we would like to go over is have Yunhei answer. Yunhei, what exactly is the H-1B cap and how does it work? Okay. Um, H-1B cap is an annual limitation on the number of new H-1B workers, which is set at 65,000. But actually only about 58,500 camp numbers are available because certain numbers are set aside for a special program for the nationals of Chile and Singapore. However, there are 20,000 extra slots for individuals who have U.S. master's degree. And once the 20,000 master's quota is used up, the individuals with U.S. master's can file cases under the regular quota. Aha, so does this mean then, and it appears that's what it would mean, that citizens of Chile and Singapore have practically no worry about ever reading the quota or the cap for almost the entire fiscal year right through till the September 30th with the start date of October the 1st. Usually that's true. I don't think it, they've ever used up the numbers that were set aside for them. Okay, wonderful. Um, Adam, let's go, go to you next. Uh, you know, when should an employer plan to file a new H-1B petition? How does the timing work? Well, the cap numbers become available at the beginning of the U.S. government's fiscal year. Each fiscal year starts on October 1st, and so the earliest H-1B start date that an employer can request on a petition is October 1st. Now, cases can be filed six months in advance of the start date you're requesting, but not er any earlier. Even if the petition is approved before October 1st, a cap subject petition will not have a starting validity date earlier than October 1st. That makes perfect sense. Okay, thank you so much, Adam. And I'm sure most of you know what are the, you know, who are the kinds of cases or what are the kinds of cases that would be subject to the H-1B cap, but we thought it would be useful just to touch upon it briefly. A beneficiary or an H-1B employee who has never previously been on H-1B status in the past is generally going to be subject to the cap or the quota. The exceptions would apply if there is a cap-exempt employer. This includes employment at or by universities and the nonprofit affiliates, as well as a nonprofit and government research organization where these are the employers. USCIS is currently reviewing its policy regarding university aff affiliations that qualify for the exemption. So remember, even if you're an IT consulting company and your H-1B consultant is working at a university, the USCIS policy is allowing them not to be counted against the quota. But USCIS is re-looking at this because they realize that they may need to change or tweak this right. policy. And also they have to be nonprofit. They have to be a nonprofit university? 
nonprofit affiliated with a university. Okay. And USCIS, as we said, has not yet released their new policy, but they have announced that they will give deference to prior approvals or determinations made since June 2006 until there is a new policy that's issued. Now, obviously, it's important for you to discuss with your attorney on what, uh, whether the employer is cap subject or cap exempt. Uh, also, any person who was previously counted against the quota or the cap in the past but has been outside the U.S. for more than one continuous year could choose either to be counted against the cap to receive uh, the full six years eligible under the law or the person may simply choose to use the remainder of time available under the six years from the prior petition and then possibly could be eligible under, you know, the uh, section of the law where you filed your green card more than 365 days earlier or the I-140 approval to get the one-year or three-year H-1B extensions. Um, of course, a physician or a medical doctor who has obtained a waiver through the Conrad or the Interested Governmental Agency program is also sub cap Sub, not subject to the H-1B cap, meaning cap exempt. Yunhei, mm -hmm. what are the requirements in order for an individual, for a company to sponsor an individual for the H-1B? Okay, well, H-1B is for specialty occupation positions, and specialty occupation positions must require a bachelor's or higher degree um, or the equivalent in the specific field. So um, the beneficiary must possess a required education or, or the equivalency at the time of filing. But one important thing to remember is that the fact that the beneficiary has the bachelor's degree does not make the position specialty occupation. It's actually the other way, meaning the company has to require a bachelor's degree in a specific field and the beneficiary has to meet the requirement. So if the company does not require a bachelor's degree in a specific field, but if the, the beneficiary happens to have it, it doesn't make the job specialty occupation. Also, um, another important issue is that if the position requires a bachelor's degree in any field, as opposed to a specific field, it's not a specialty occupation. The position must request a degree in a specific field that is directly related to the duties to be performed in the position. And um, lastly, sometimes uh, the beneficiary have completed all the coursework in the degree program, but the graduation ceremony hasn't happened and the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma in hand at the time of filing. In this situation, the student must um, obtain a letter from the school's register or the dean verifying that the student has completed all requirements for the degree and that the student is merely awaiting the physical diploma. Okay, that's extremely helpful. And I know from time to time some of you will say, oh, I have a bachelor's degree in economics, but I'm now working in the IT consulting field. Can I do it? And then we go into, you know, is it a business analyst position that we could show the business degree in economics or finance or whether it's still going to be a potential problem? Obviously, working with smart, bright, knowledgeable, good lawyers with a law firm will be able to sort of fine-tune it and parse it and try to figure out whether or not the candidate will be eligible for a business analyst position, or maybe the, the employer may decide not to proceed with that particular applicant at this time, especially if the climate is so tough, uh, even with strong, good candidates. But those are the kinds of issues that you would really need to discuss with your lawyer, and the Muthi Law Firm, of course, is very, very knowledgeable and qualified uh, and tell, can tell you where are the risks and what's involved. 
So Adam, from a strategic point of view, in terms of planning, the employer needs to figure out when they should start actually preparing for a case, even if they can file it on April the 1st. What, what time frame are we looking at? It, well, it's vital to plan ahead, as it's really not possible to predict when exactly the cap numbers will be depleted, when they'll run out. And as many of you know, the cap numbers for fiscal year 2012, this, this current fiscal year, ran out rather unexpectedly in November of 2011. And there were still um, several thousand cases uh, that had been filed, and people were still filing cases and didn't know until after the cap had run out that um, it had run out. And so USCIS then proceeded with returning all those petitions back to the, the filers. It was and, really annoying and upsetting. And, and very surprising because they the USCIS does, as they get closer to when the, the cap numbers are being reached, will update the numbers. But this time, they didn't update the numbers until a couple of days after it had been reached. And so people were still filing cases, not realizing that there were no more numbers. So it is really important to run out. And even if it does move slowly, that doesn't mean it's not going to speed up at some point. It's important to understand that there are several steps involved in actually preparing the H-1B petition that's going to be sent to the Immigration Service, especially in light of the fact that the labor condition application, the LCA certification, may take up to seven business days. Um, The case should be started as early as possible, and in some instances, when an LCA is filed, it might get denied because the Department of Labor can't verify the FEIN, the employer identification number of the employer. And so there can be some delays with the processing of the LCA by Department of Labor, and there's no way to file the H-1B petition without that LCA. Now, while the cap numbers may be available for some months, the H-1B preparation being complex and as the USCIS is subjecting H-1B petitions to substantially greater scrutiny these days than they have in past years, um, it's important to have this time so that the case can be prepared as best as possible. And this is particularly true in situations where workers are being assigned to third-party locations. To have the best chance for success in these kinds of H-1B petitions, it's really necessary to be aware that there are documentary requirements that might be Uh, greater than in other cases where you're not putting someone at a third-party location, and current policy and adjudication trends that your lawyer is seeing will generally influence the kind of advice that they're giving you. So you might have experienced in the past an ability to file an H-1B petition with less documentation, but you hire a lawyer who sees a wide array of cases and is familiar with changing trends as they're happening, that lawyer is going to advise you to provide additional documentation that might not be something you're used to doing. It's not because the lawyer is trying to make your life difficult. It certainly would be easier for the lawyer to be able to repair and file a case more quickly, but it's the lawyer trying to prepare your case as best as possible so that it can be filed and approved by USCIS instead of denied or just issued an RFE. Thank you, Adam. And, and I think Adam makes the point, and we are going to be touching upon the additional scrutiny that we've all been seeing, especially uh, with IT consulting companies and the kinds of problems and issues that we're all, unfortunately, uh, intimately familiar with, both in terms of petition extensions, petition brand new petitions, and consulates uh, are routinely denying H-1Bs or L-1 visas based on uh, you know, the Newfelt memo of January 2010, et cetera. Uh, but you know, again, as, as Adam alluded to it right now, now, uh, the uh, Murthy Law Firm does have a lot of experience. We have seen a lot of cases. And again, we process literally thousands and thousands of cases um, each year. 
uh, immigration-related cases. And so it is easier to see trends, to pick up on it before almost anybody else in the country, to figure out how to be creative and strategize in attempting to obtain approvals and how to be more proactive uh, and try to come up with solutions with uh, in trying to help the employer reach the goal of hopefully obtaining the H-1B petition approval. Yunhe, um, if the employee is in the United States and needs to file a change of status to H-1B, how does that work, particularly because we have a lot of students that are maybe on the F-1 status, maybe on J-1s, but F-1 in most cases, that will expire sometime in the summer because most most of them get the EAD or the F-1 OPT for about 12 months unless it's a STEM extension valid for, you know, the full 29 months. Mm -hmm. Well, um, change of status to H-1B can be a complex issue because it has to happen on a specific date. And for CAP cases, it's usually October 1. And generally, for a beneficiary to be eligible for change of status to H-1B in the U.S., um, it only happens only if the beneficiary is in a non-immigrant status, which will continue through at least until September 30th, um, so that there's no gap in status, because generally if there's a gap in status, you're not eligible for a change of status. But if the beneficiary is in F1 status, the situation is different because there's a thing called a cap-gap extension. So if the student's, uh, student's F1 status, whether or not in OPT, and prior to September 30th, the student may be eligible for an automatic cap gap extension until September 30th, assuming four conditions are met. The first is that a petition filed, uh, the petition filed um, is it, petition is filed before the expiration of OPT or the end of the grace period. And second, a change of status is requested on the H-1B petition. And third, an October 1st start date is requested on the petition. And lastly, the case has to be eventually approved. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I guess the question really is then, but if they're only in the grace period, then they can't work. Right, right. The period. Right. The CAPGAP extension starts when the student's current period of F1 status ends, regardless of um, OPT or not. If the student is in OPT at the time of filing, then the OPT work authorization will extend until September 30th. But if the student is not in OPT at the time of filing, then the, the person can stay in the U.S., but may not start to work until October 1, and assuming that the petition is approved, of course. If the petition is rejected, denied, or revoked, then the cap-gap extension will terminate. And a petition can be rejected in a lottery, or if for some reason there is a, uh, uh, a reason that USCIS couldn't accept it for processing, uh, most commonly for incomplete petitions for missing documents, missing signatures. Usually signatures, mm -hmm. checks being mm -hmm. in the wrong mm -hmm. amount. Right. We've seen that, and people right. often get confused with what is a rejection, what True. is a denial. Mm -hmm. Most people use the terms interchangeably, but mm -hmm. for USCIS, mm -hmm. a rejection is where the mailroom turns it, rejects it, right. as opposed to a proper denial where an examiner looks at it and then denies it. Right. When the case is rejected, they, they actually mail it back to you. Um, for CAPGAP extension, there's no notice that you will get from USCIS. So in order to uh, obtain a proof of CAPGAP extension, the student has to contact the school's DSO, designated school officer, and request an updated I-20. And this is the student's responsibility, not the DSO. 
Um, CVIS, which administers um, F1-I-20s, strongly recommends that the students do not travel outside the U.S. during the CAP-CAP extension, especially because USCIS will consider a change of status request to be abandoned if the beneficiary leaves the U.S. while the application is pending. If the student must travel outside the U.S. during their cap gap, it is strongly recommended that they actually wait out until the end of summer and return pursuant to H-1B to start work on October 1 instead of trying to come back for the remaining time of the cap gap. Oh, interesting. So there was a memo from USCIS saying that even if you come back on the F-1 status, uh, it's okay as long as your start date on your H-1 petition is October the 1st. Has anything changed with that USCIS guidance, or is this just being extra cautious and careful? It's, it's being extra cautious only because there's no formal document that shows there's no formal um, OPT card that shows that you have work authorization. You only have an updated I-20, but your OPT card has already expired and you could get into trouble or have difficult time at the port of entry or if you do need to obtain a visa, that could also be an issue if the consular officer does not properly understand how the cap gap works. Okay. Uh, what, are th- what, what would the difference be, Adam? Let's have you jump in here if you sure. can. If the student is either outside the United States or if there are circumstances under which the person is not eligible. Well, then the, the, the short answer to that is that person is going to be faced with consular processing. The person is going to have to apply for a, a visa with an approved H-1B petition. So if, for example, you have a beneficiary who is not in F-1 status, if current, their current status ends before October 1st, um, not as Anhei mentioned on September 30th or after that, and he or she cannot maintain a non-immigrant status until September 30th, uh, then the beneficiary will not be able to change status to H-1B because their status will end and there's nothing further beyond it. Without F-1, there's no cap gap. Without status, it ends um, past October 1st or at the very latest on September 30th, uh, USCIS will not grant H-1B status to such a person, and then the petition should be prepared for consular processing. It's, it's really a bad idea to try and hope that USCIS will, will miss it or will, will approve it without it with an extension of status or a change of status. If, if the status isn't there, there's no eligibility for CAP-GAP, just prepare for consular processing. And an H-1B for a petition that is filed for consular processing, approved for consular processing, does not allow the beneficiary to work in the United States immediately. What needs to happen is that he or she will have to leave the United States before the end of the current status or by the time their status ends and apply for the H-1 visa at the consulate based on this petition approval and then return to the United States. And on entering the United States, they'll get an H-1B I-94 card and can start working. So... Because of the, the gravity of this issue, um, issues related to status changes, if there are questions or concerns about it, um, they can be complex. Um, they can be sometimes easily explained and addressed, but it's very important to discuss them with the attorney that's handling your case. If you have questions or concerns, if you're confused, ask your attorney about the case early on, so this way you're prepared when the time comes that you do have to travel abroad to get that visa instead of just discovering it when the H-1B petition approval comes without an I-94 card. Okay, thank you, Adam. And, and I think for the, when, when, when Adam explained the person is not in F-1 status and the common situations are like a B-1, B-2, a person entered on a tourist visa, or even right. F-2 if you're the spouse of an F-1. So anything other than not being on the F-1 would not grant you this benefit. And again, a lot of people get confused with 
visa and status and petition. And we've done, you know, gone over that in prior right. conferences. Visa is what you get at the consulate. Status is what you get within the U.S., as Adam explained, and Yune was explaining the I-94 card at the bottom of the approval notice. So I just thought I would throw that in there. Um, Adam, I know this is a technical issue. Um, employers can read it on the website, but you know how many thousands of cases every year, unfortunately, are filed where the employer does not realize uh, the different filing fees. So I think it's helpful just to touch upon the filing fees. Sure, it's a good idea, and it's always a good idea to go over it with your attorney. Uh, the The basic filing fee is three hundred and twenty five dollars. There's a five hundred dollar anti fraud fee. Um, it's strongly recommended that it be paid by the employer. There are certainly attorneys um, that advise that it must be paid by the employer because of the language of the law creating the fraud fee. There is some debate as, as to whether it is strongly recommended or actually required. There is a training fee that is either $1,500 or $750 that must be paid by the employer, and it depends on the number of employees that the company has. If there's 25 or fewer employees, you get to pay the lower fee. Um, otherwise, it's the higher fee. There is a $2,000 border protection fee that has to be paid by the employer. If the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of those employees are on H-1B, and L1A or L1B status combined. This does not include people who are working for you in L2 status with an EAD card. Now, employers might be exempt from some of these fees when filing subsequent H-1B extensions for the same employee. It's very important to double check carefully wh whether or not you are subject to these to these fees, all of them, some of them, uh, because of the way the law is written, because of the way the requirements for the fees are written, it can be confusing, and sometimes your attorney might advise you it's better to include the check for a particular fee and have USCIS return just the check as opposed to having the entire petition rejected, returned back by the mailroom because it's missing a fee that USCIS thinks you have to pay. Now, the only fee that's really optional here is the $1,225 premium processing fee. Premium processing is a way to obtain your decision a lot faster, but it doesn't give you any advantage in the cap. Your petition comes in like any other petition that is submitted, whether it's to premium processing service or not to premium processing service. It also does not permit an employment start date before October 1st. If a case is filed without premium processing, it can be upgraded later. Once you have the receipt notice, you file the I-907 form to USCIS with a filing fee, and it can be upgraded to premium processing service. And for those of you who are not familiar with it at all, premium processing service will provide 15 days of uh, processing um, and then there are certain But that rules. could mean an RFE is issued within 15 days, which could then exactly. so it could end up taking weeks or months if you have to provide Exactly. Them. So even with premium processing, there's no guarantee that you're going to get something quickly. And there are, unfortunately, exceptions to premium processing as well. Um, so again, as with many of the other things here, it's a good idea to talk over with the um, lawyer handling your case, whether it's worthwhile to do premium processing or not. Okay, thank you, Adam. And the reason I think we think it's important is because if you will just observe, the filing fees for an H-1 have become so outrageous to some extent. In the end, it could cost almost the same whether you're doing a green card case, which could take 5, 10, 15, 20 years, or an H-1B petition, because by the time you're done with the government fees and the uh, um, law legal fees, it's it's really, really expensive. And I, it clearly appears that the U.S., 
CIS and Department of Homeland Security, our legislature, uh, is trying really hard to, in a way, dissuade employers from using it a lot, especially with H-1B dependent employers that are slapped on with that additional $2,000 border protection, the border protection fee. Um, yeah, it's 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 almost like you know, depending if you use premium processing, you're talking over five thousand dollars just in government fees, five, almost five and a half thousand dollars, over five and a half thousand uh, dollars, and you add a couple thousand more for the lawyer fees. Yeah. That's like uh, same as green card. Well, unless you go to an outrageously expensive place, but of course we do amazing work at an amazing value for our amazing clients. Um, I know that some of you may be wondering about. There was something that we had discussed at one point about an online registration that was required for all H-1B cap cases. Um, So I thought that I would briefly touch upon it because in March 2011, just a little less than a year ago, the USCIS had proposed that all H-1B employers need to pre-register through an online account to obtain an H-1B visa number which is subject to the quota or the cap. For whatever reason, the USCIS did not provide any updated information, so that rule is not yet in effect. Of course, they may implement it at any time as it's already an interim rule, so you need to keep that in mind as employers. If the system does go into effect, remember that you would need to register online for each CAP case that you plan to file. Even if the USCIS accepts the registration that does not automatically guarantee that you've got an approval or a cap number. Depending on the number of registrations or people who apply that they receive, the USCIS may again end up doing the same thing or conducting a lottery. So if you're given a cap number, the employer then has a certain window of time to file that petition. Uh, Obviously, we have an excellent article available on murthy.com regarding this specific topic. Uh, So if you find out that something has been passed, instead of panicking, remember to go to the go-to resource in the country to keep you updated on this issue. And uh, we will obviously continue to post information, maybe have a teleconference, send out an article, do whatever to apprise and keep you as employers uh, completely on top of things so that you're not left alone in the dark. Of course, as we said, we've been seeing a lot, all of you have been seeing a lot of issues, a lot of RFEs, a lot of denials, uh, specifically and particularly for ID consulting companies with respect to H-1 petitions. And the most common issues that we find are first, employer-employee issues, showing the relationship. Second, the work location, which Adam is going to speak about, the employer-employee relationship, which Yunhei is going to speak about. And then the end client documentation, which I will touch upon to show a bona fide specialty occupation. So Yunhei, I know that you deal with this in your H-1B department Mm -hmm. extensively. Can you touch upon the kinds of issues that are being raised? Sure, I mean, we've discussed this employer-employee relationship issue in um, in many previous teleconferences. And basically the USCIS effectively altered the adjudication standards with the January 8th, 2010 memo, requiring that the employer show the right to control its H-1B employees. USCIS indicated that merely hiring, firing, paying, and providing benefits will not be enough to show employer-employee relationship. In fact, according to the memo, the employer needs to um, demonstrate that 
First, the employer has the right to control the manner and means by which the work is done by the employee. And secondly, that this control will continue for the entire H-1B duration that is requested on the petition. Um, basically, the USCIS must be able to determine through evidence, not just statement or the claim, but, but evidence sub submitted by the company if the employer has the sufficient level of control over the employee, especially when the employee is placed at a third-party site. And some of the factors that are considered include um, whether or not the petitioner has the right to assign additional duty to the employee and the extent of the employer's discretion over when and how long the employee will work, and also who provides the equipment, the tools needed to perform the job. Um, basically, the USCIS repeatedly stated that the payment of wages, basically paying the salary, is the least important factor in, in finding that the company has the, the right to control the employee. And we actually have some detailed suggestions for avoiding an employee-employee relationship RFE, which we will discuss in detail a, a little later in, the, in this tele teleconference today. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you, Yone. And I know that in spite of them, uh, the, the USCIS and giving a really, really hard time to many companies and so many companies sort of really suffering after spending thousands and thousands of dollars, as Adam just explained, in filing fees, mm -hmm. uh, you still end up getting either an RFU or a denial. It kind of puts you in a little bit of a panic because, you know, that's your source of income. And with IT consulting companies, your main source of your business is your employees and, and their ability to work at client projects and client sites. So it is pretty scary. Of course, the multi-law firm has a very, very high success uh, appro approval rating. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's amazing because there are times I've, I've been convinced that when you look at the, the six-page RFE and the client comes to us or a person comes to hire us at that stage, and we are then able to overcome that, the problem sometimes can be, though, if the person comes to us after the case has been filed poorly, then we cannot you know, now come back and say, well, we actually meant Y and not X, even though X was said in the initial petition. So planning properly, laying the foundation. I tell people, my father was a civil engineer. It's very important to lay a strong foundation because you can build a six-bedroom house and the six-bedroom house can collapse without a proper foundation. So doing the right job the first time around uh, you know, doing it in a way that will result in an approval is critical. And so the employer-employee relationship, of course, is the biggest reasons that we're seeing RFEs and denials that all of you have obviously been concerned with. Uh, Adam, the next biggest problem that we've seen with are the issues about work locations. Yes. And so can you describe yes. discuss that? Sure. Now, so USCIS has been raising this issue for a long time, and they continue to request that all the actual work sites that this beneficiary will be performing services at be identified at the time of filing the H-1B petition. If the employee will be working at more than one location, for example, at the company's home office, at a client's office, the employer is required to provide an itinerary with the petition. And there's actually a question on the I-129 form that asks about this issue. And so if this is going to be the case, that there is going to be more than one work location, you need to have an LCA for each work location, and you also need to identify it on the LCA, on the I-129, and have the itinerary as another piece of evidence along with your H-1B petition. And so, the in order in preparation of your H-1B case, you need to be you need to prepare and file a labor condition application and have it certified for each work location at the time of filing the H-1B petition. When a request for evidence comes uh, asking about work location. Uh, responding at that point is going to be a problem because 
that will be considered by USCIS typically as a material change that would be a basis for them to deny the H-1B petition. Now, another issue that comes up in relationship to work location, and this does not always come up during the processing of the H-1B petition, oftentimes after, it could be weeks, um, oftentimes it's months after the petition is approved, USCIS site visits. Now, the USCIS has been conducting more site visits um, in the past several months. It's been increasing over the past couple of years, um, but with more frequency. When USCIS conducts site visits, usually it's in the form of representatives from the uh, Fraud Detection and National Security Office. Sometimes they're actual employees of FDNS. Sometimes it's contractors working for FDNS. They'll visit the work address on the I-129 form. They're not necessarily going to come to the company's location. They might be going to the client site where this beneficiary is going to be working. Therefore, if the beneficiary's work location has changed after the petition was approved, it is strongly recommended that an amended H-1B petition be filed rather than simply obtaining a new labor condition application for that new location. Now, historically, it was fine to get, get a new LCA for the new location. And we've discussed this in articles on Murti.com. We've discussed this in other teleconferences. Currently, for the past several months, USCIS's position that they've been taking is that if you've not notified them with an amended H-1B petition, you've not satisfied their requirements. So this is a sort of a clearer change in policy. And so it, the people who relied on the old policy guidance of just simply filing an uh, LCA amendment from Department of Labor may now be uh, in potential violation of this sort of latest trend. Again, it's the very, safer route. It's the be better route. And if so. you're not changing the date, then you don't need to pay all those gazillion other fees. All you pay is just the 325 base fee. Uh, for many of you that right. are processing and, and your H-1s in-house. And even with the additional fees that come with an amended H-1B petition, be mindful of the fact that if FDNS comes and visits and doesn't find the person at the location because that person's moved, um, the result of that may be problems for other employees at the consulates, might be a revocation of this H-1B petition. So long-term, spending the money on the amended H-1B petition will very likely be a money well spent. Thank you very much, Adam. And then the third factor that we talked about, which I said I would touch upon, is the end client documents, which show a bona fide specialty occupation. And so if the H-1B worker is working on a specific client project, there needs to be evidence of the project in the form of the contract, the purchase orders, statement of work, uh, and or a letter from the end client. Obviously, if there are mid-vendors involved, which many of us have seen, then each contractual document relating to the mid-vendor should ideally also be submitted. As we've all seen, the USCIS has become increasingly stricter about submitting these kinds of end-client contracts and end-client letters to verify that the employer has a specialty occupation job available for the H-1B employee for the entire time requested in the petition. So for example, if you have a three-year H-1 that was allowed three years, that was routinely being granted back in the good old days, guess what? Now if your end-client letter only talks about a six-month project, you only get six months on your H-1 petition. Now multiply that 5,500 fee 
or even half of that because the fraud fee and the the other fees only paid for the first two applicants, you know, the first time in the extension, you're still talking potentially thousands of dollars in a fee every few months. And certainly the legal fees keep can keep adding, which becomes ridiculously expensive for employers trying to do business and stay profitable, especially in this tough economy. Um, from a practical point of view, we certainly understand that it is extremely difficult to obtain end client contracts and letters because in many cases, uh, the end client refuses to give it or the reason that they hire consultants is so they don't have to deal with those kinds of problems. Um, uh, and therefore they're not in the possession of the H-1B employer and they can't control it, especially their layers and mid vendors involved. Um, in order to help the H-1B employers with this issue, Actually, we, our legal team, our attorneys here at the Muthi Law Firm, are willing to call and speak either with the mid-vendors or with the end clients or both in order to help you all as H-1B employers when and if it's necessary in order to explain how the law works and what are the risks and that we're all in this together to really try to help obtain the approval in a win-win relationship for the benefit of all concerned. So we're not just lawyers that fill out the form and follow the laws and look at every change in the law. We actually are here to protect you. We act sort of as your in-house counsel as well, and we do it at a very, very good, um, you know, reasonable fee to hold your hand and to guide you through this complex process that constantly seems to be changing. Yunhe, so how can the employer demonstrate the qualifying H-1B employment for the entire duration that they're requesting? Well, yes, duration is an important issue. I mean, as we've talked about, as expensive it is to file an H-1B petition, you want to be able to maximize the time that you will you will receive for each petition. And um, for um, cases that involve um, projects and end clients and third-party uh, uh, work location, um, the, the strongest evidence of duration is confirmation from the end client, whether in the form of contract or um, purchase order or a statement of work or a letter from the end client. And USCIS has consistently asked for confirmation from the end client for the duration because the end client is the, the party that is directly receiving the service. You may also submit a letter from the mid-vendor verifying the duration, but mid-vendor letters without any confirmation from the end client has very, very, very little value, unfortunately. And, and if you don't have any documents, or if you do have documents from the end clients, but if you want to supplement the document, you can use internal documents such as project plans, project timelines that indicate the ongoing nature of the project or specified date the project will uh, continue um, and the ongoing need for the employee. Um, the you know, as as mentioned, the documents from the end client is the strongest document. But um, if they're not available, the employer can try to use other forms of evidence to demonstrate their bona fide specialty occupation and the duration of the project. But keep in mind, using alternative documents without end client documents will really weaken the case. And and in many cases, if there are no end client um, confirmation of duration, the USCIS has been approving such cases for one year maximum. Okay. In some cases, there are denials. So it would be important to make sure, um, you know, try your best to contact your end client to receive some sort of confirmation of the duration of a project, whether in forms of, in the form of contract or letter or even an email could help. 
Okay. And, mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Yune. I know I'm very, very cognizant of the time because um, we always try to be protective and you know sensitive to the issue that we try to wrap this up between 30 to 45 minutes. We're right about at that time. Uh, and I know we said we would try to briefly touch upon a little bit about the employer-employee relationship and how to establish that because that is now becoming the most common reason for denial of most of these petitions. So I'll have Adam literally touch upon it maybe in a minute or two, something that we haven't already discussed. As we've discussed earlier, we are going to mention a few items that are useful in responding to a request for evidence about an employer-employee relationship. And given the time that we have left, I'm just going to hit a few of them. Uh, Any evidence regarding the employer's right to hire and pay ability to fire an employment uh, relationship like an employment contract, employee handbook, um, evidence of performance evaluations, any proprietary products of the employer that the employee is going to be using during the course of his work are good things to be uh, including in response to the RFE uh, or actually when you file the petition. The other thing that I'll mention on a, on a final note is that if you can get a letter from your end client or mid-vendor, um, it, it would be very valuable to include in those letters uh, evidence uh, points to the fact that it is the petitioner and not the end client or mid-vendor who will be controlling the work of this particular worker. Thank you, Adam. That's terrific. Uh, It's unfortunate that the government's requiring employers to jump through so many hoops, but it seems to be the name of the game, and it seems to be the economic climate we are in among all other factors, including security concerns. Yes. Uh, And as Adam correctly pointed out and we had discussed, we are very sensitive to timing issues. We really wish to thank each of you for investing your time, effort, and energy in being a part of our incredible Murthy Law Firm teleconference series. Um, Thanks to my wonderful co-panelists, Adam Rosen and Eunhe Gong. We certainly look forward to continuing to help and guide you uh, with H-1B and complex issues. Uh, And of course, you have the best legal team on your side. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, and we look forward to continuing to guide and mentor you.